there was a work of Swedenborg's that seemingly got a greater response in heaven than any other. But this work is rarely remembered when listing Swedenborg's theological works. It's not heaven and hell, not divine providence, and not even true Christianity. Which work of Swedenborg's caused the entire sky of heaven in all directions to fill with purple flowers? And more importantly, why did that work have such an effect? To answer these questions, we're going to have to do some digging. But together, we'll uncover the hidden agenda of the book that made heaven rejoice right now, Inside Off the Left Eye. In the second half of 1770, Swedenborg was traveling again, as he often does in the late summer, early fall. He was leaving Stockholm to go to Gothenburg, en route to Amsterdam to finally publish his long-awaited work, which would comprehensively lay out the doctrine of the new church. At the age of 82, this would be his last journey abroad, from which he would never return to his homeland of Sweden. On his way out of town, he stopped by the city bank to bid farewell to his good friend and neighbor, Karl Robsom, who was the treasurer there. Robsom asked, will I ever see you again? To which Swedenborg replied, Whether I shall come again, that I do not yet know. But of this I can assure you, for the Lord has promised to me that I shall not die until I shall have received from the press this work which is now ready to be printed, and for the sake of which I now undertake this journey. But if we do not meet again in the body, we shall meet in the presence of the Lord, provided we live in this world according to his will and not according to our own. That work was true Christianity. On his final ride out of the city of Stockholm, Swedenborg was inspired to write a short sketch of a manuscript for a work that would never be published, called An Ecclesiastical History of the New Church. This draft is but a mere seven paragraphs, brief notes really, of what he intends the work to contain. Its first line is bold. A new history of the church must be written because now is the time of the coming of the Lord foretold in Matthew 24. The church was different before Before the the Council of Nicaea, when there was the Apostles' Creed, which may be written out, from what it was after the Council of Nicaea. And it was even more different after the Athanasian Creed was composed. The cardinal doctrine of the church concerning the triune God and the Lord was changed, especially concerning three persons from eternity. Make a list of books that have been written by the Lord through me from the beginning up to the present time. Translators have had a difficult time with this work because the writing is so illegible in places on account of him writing while in transit but contained in this messily written draft is a remarkable statement that only occurs here and in a letter he wrote the previous fall in 1769. When the work Brief Exposition was published, the angelic heaven from east to west and from south to north appeared purple-colored with the loveliest flowers. This happened before my very eyes and before those of the kings of Denmark and others. And in the letter, he describes the occurrence as follows. When this preliminary treatise was finished, then in the world of spirits, the whole heaven from east to west and from south to north 
was seen by me covered with beautiful purple roses to the admiration of all who were present there, which was the testification of the new heaven's consent and pleasure. Whoa, whoa, wait. What is that book? Brief Exposition? Why have I not heard of this? Yeah, it's it's this short work that Swedenborg wrote ahead of publishing True Christianity. It's what he said, a preliminary treatise. In the New Century Edition translation, its full title is Survey of Teachings of the New Church Meant by the New Jerusalem in the Book of Revelation. We call it Survey for short. Dr. Jonathan Rose. You made it. (laughs) So this preliminary treatise made a big splash in heaven. It seemed to be such a big deal that Swedenborg finishes the ecclesiastical history draft after describing this floral explosion in heaven with this note. The coming of the Lord was written on all the books in the spiritual world. By command, I therefore wrote this in the same place in two copies in Holland. What? The the coming of the Lord on that treatise? So have people been able to find those? Only one copy has been found that I know of. It surfaced in the 1870s, which spurred a hunt for that other copy, which as far as I know was never found. And the one copy that was found is now in the British Museum. Yes, in fact, I had a chance to see it there myself. And you can see Swedenborg's handwriting... And the words are in Latin, hic liber est adventus domini scriptum ext mandato. Now, this phrase is a little ambiguous. Most people take it to mean this book, hic liber, is the advent of the Lord. Latin has no word for the, but so it says literally, this book is coming of the Lord, written on command. Other people have argued that actually there's an ambiguity in the Latin there and that adventus could be genitive, in which case it would mean this book is part of, it partakes of the coming of the Lord. And this book was written on command. Well, I mean, if you're the part of the coming of the Lord or the whole thing, either way, this is something to write home about. So what was so remarkable or important about this preliminary treatise to true Christianity? Well, to know what's important about it, you have to know what it really was. The first thing to know about survey is that it's not what it says it is. What, Wait, what are you talking about? How could that be? Well, it's really more than what its title says it is. There are many hidden layers within this small work. One layer is who is the work really written for? Well, Swedenborg had kind of pivoted around 1760 toward writing works, at least some of his works, for the clergy. You see this in the shorter works of 1763, the so-called Four Teachings or Four Doctrines and supplements. And then you get even more of that in Revelation Unveiled. And Revelation Unveiled is interesting because it begins with a section kind of summarizing Catholic and Protestant doctrine. And then here in survey, lo and behold, you get that again. So the work is crowded with scriptural quotations, allusions to the creeds and and this sort of thing. So it seems quite clearly to be for the clergy. So you're saying that survey kind of mirrored 
Revelation Unveiled, and they're kind of in this track of targeting the clergy. And what I know of Revelation Unveiled is that it created a bit of a stir, right? Like, I think you told me, Jonathan, about there being an advertisement of Revelation Unveiled in Britain, which is written in half English and half Latin, which was really a poster for the work. And that advertisement read, the book of Revelation Unveiled, uncovering the secrets that were foretold there and have lain hidden until now, together with memorable occurrences at the end of the chapters, some of which concern the English and their bishops in the spiritual world. The memorable occurrences are found there at, and then it lists a bunch of paragraph numbers. It's almost got like a a step right up kind of feel. You're not going to believe what's behind the curtain here. Yes. (laughs) And he's challenging the bishops, like, or saying, like, you're in here, guys. You want to see what I'm writing about you. Yeah, they're being called out in a way that no earlier work of his was quite so bold. And even to tell the British public in this ad, check this out. Your bishops don't look good in here. It's clickbait. I'm going to, what's going to pull people into this book? Okay, I'm going to put the uh, the bishops and the afterlife in there. That's right. So he is trying to sort of stir the waters or get get some waves going around this and particularly trying to get the attention of of the clergy. And what's amazing is that still at that time, he wasn't publishing under his own name. He was still anonymous. But then he really comes out when he puts his name to his next major work, Marriage Love. And it's with the publication of Marriage Love that he claims all his previous theological works. And so there he writes, Emanuel Swedenborg, a Swede. And so uh, Revelation Unveiled is 1766, if I have that right. And then Marriage Love is 1768. And so it's at the end of Marriage Love that he makes this statement. Within two years, you will see the complete doctrine of the new church foretold by the Lord in Revelation 21 and 22. Dun, dun, dun. So I think part of why he publishes survey when he does is to maintain a momentum of change. He wanted to strike while the iron was hot. He was afraid it would cool down by 1770, two years after that statement. Yeah, because so he publishes survey in February of 1769. So not too long after Marriage Love was published, but then True Christianity does take longer and it doesn't come out until 1771. Okay, so survey was kind of like an insulated mug. Like we're going to keep this stuff hot. It was an interim work, like a filler, right? It was to give the give the clergy a heads up of what's coming and keep the attention from dying down. Well, that's certainly what it seems to be. But as I said in the beginning, survey is not what it says it is. So I think we'd better crack open the book for ourselves and see what we find. No, no, it was a really small work. Okay, why don't you kick us off here, Jonathan? All right, let's quote from the very beginning of it. Survey section one. After publishing within a span of a few years several larger and smaller works on the New Jerusalem, which means the new church that the Lord is going to establish, and after unveiling the book of Revelation, I resolved to publish and bring to light the teachings of the new church in their fullness and thus to present a body of teaching that was whole. Wow. So right there, he actually 
puts it all out in a timeline. Like he says, this is what I've been doing this all in sequence, sort of on purpose. And now here we are leading up to this, you know, the final, the final work. And off the top of my head, I think that was only the second time he'd ever written a a preface like that, that sort of told you, here's what I'm doing. The first time was in the the Lord, the work, the Lord in the 1763s. It's like a little, little company newsletter or something. Yes. Right. It is. And it's all in anticipation of this, these bringing to light the teachings of the new church in their fullness. And I know some people have been a little shocked by the statement that he says, I resolved to publish. They thought, well, wasn't he being led by the Lord? You yeah. know, how could he say, I resolved to publish and bring to light? You know, it was going to take too long. So I decided right. to put another work in there. He's planning. It's all this planning. And he goes on. But because this work was going to take several years, I developed a plan to publish an outline of it to give people an initial general picture of this church and its teachings. All right. So the main event is upcoming. But so in the meantime, he's saying, I'll just publish this outline of it. So right there, he's telling us what it is, what survey is, and he's giving us the reason as well. It's an outline of this forthcoming work. That's clear. It's, it seems like a straightforward strategy. I think I, I get where we are now. Yeah. And so flipping through here, just like in Revelation Unveiled, like Jonathan was saying, he first gives a treatment of Roman Catholic doctrine, and that's numbers two through eight. And then then he's treating Protestant doctrine, numbers nine through 15. Then it says, sketch of the teachings of the new church, just ahead of paragraph number 16, which then reads, what follows here is a survey of the teachings of the new church. So here it is. Here's the outline. Let's read it in full. Paragraph 16. What follows here is a survey of the teachings of the new church meant by the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22. In the work itself, these teachings, which concern not only what to believe, but also how to live, will be broken into three parts. Part one will present teachings on the following topics the Lord God, the Savior, and the divine trinity within him. Sacred scripture, its two meanings, earthly and spiritual, and its resulting holiness. Love for God, love for our neighbor, and the harmony between them. Faith and its partnership with those two types of love. Teachings about life drawn from the Ten Commandments. Reformation and regeneration. Free choice and our cooperation with the Lord by means of it. Baptism, the Holy Supper, heaven and hell, our partnership with heaven or hell, and how our state of life after death depends on that partnership. Eternal life. Part two will discuss the following topics. The close of the age, the end of the church in existence today, the coming of the Lord, the last judgment, the new church, which is the new Jerusalem. Part three will demonstrate the discordance between the dogmas of the church in existence today and those of the new church. So he's gotten his job done. He's given us the outline. So far, survey seems to be written for the clergy and 
it seems to be what it says it is, a brief summary of teachings of the forthcoming work, True Christianity. But wait, 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 there's over a hundred more paragraphs. Exactly. See, there are more layers to be explored. That's because survey is more than what it says it is. So what is it really, and who is it really for? Paragraph number 16 goes on. Take it away, Jonathan. In the present volume, too, we will spend a little time on these points of discordance, because both clergy and lay people in the church of today believe that their church is walking in the very light of the gospel and in truths that cannot be weakened, uprooted, or assailed even by an angel if one should come down from heaven. The church today cannot see otherwise because it has withdrawn the intellect from matters of faith and has supported its dogmas through a kind of sight that exists beneath the intellect. That level of the mind is able to provide argumentation to support falsities so effectively that they appear to be truths. Once falsities have been reinforced on that level, they gain a deceptive kind of light. Where light of that kind exists, the light of truths looks like thick darkness. For this reason, we will spend a little time presenting points of discordance and noting a few things about them by way of illustration so that people whose intellects have not been closed off by blind faith will be able to see the differences, first as in twilight, then as in morning light, and eventually, when the work itself appears, as in the full light of day. In general, the points of discordance are the following. Okay, okay. So his audience might be the clergy, but he also calls out the lay people... And so he's clearly calling out a broader audience than just the clergy. He knows that there's others watching or listening in as well. And it's those people whose intellects have not been closed off by blind faith. He's challenging his real audience even. He's saying, has your intellect been closed off by blind faith? Let's see a show of hands. No, no, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the emperor's new clothes, sort of, but in reverse. Yes. Okay. So we've got, he's he's picking a fight or he's stirring up trouble. And I got to know, like, what, what issues is he going after? What are the points of discordance? Well, he goes on to present a brief analysis of 25 points of doctrine. And besides some memorable occurrences at the end, that's the rest of the work. Okay, so, but all these analyses are just part of the preview of part three of True Christianity, right? Well, what's in uh, part three of True Christianity when it actually gets published? Actually, there's no parts to the book at all. What? Well, it's true. Parts one and two, as he described it there, actually become a sequence of 14 chapters. And then there's a section of additional materials after that. Okay, but so then what's in the additional materials? Well, that's actually pretty much of a light edit, a reprint of Supplements, a work that he originally published in 1763. Well, then where's part three? Can can anybody get me part three, please? (laughs) No, because part three doesn't happen. There's no part three. Part three 
is survey. It's the point of survey. Okay, so he didn't put the part three label on it, but he definitely treats of those discordances in true Christianity, right? He doesn't. No, he doesn't. Liar. I know. Part three of his promised work of this, the fullness of new church teachings, only exists in survey as those discordances and their brief analysis. So those brief analyses are really the full analysis as far as we can tell because they don't exist anywhere else. So what is survey really? It is part three of true Christianity. And he's presenting these points of discordance, as he writes, so that people whose intellects have not been closed off by blind faith will be able to see the differences between the prevailing doctrines and those teachings of the new church. I've got to sit down for a minute. Okay, so going back to our questions, we now know what survey really is, and we have a broader sense of who it's really for. But isn't there an even deeper layer that we haven't explored yet, which would be why? Why did he do this bait and switch on us? And then also, why was there such an enormous reaction in heaven in response to it? Okay, so... You said before that there was this stir going on and that Swedenborg didn't want to miss it and he didn't want to lose the momentum that he had. Yes, and just a month later, a month after publishing survey, this person you could call a frenemy of Swedenborg's, Johann Christian Kuno, kind of calls him out for this. Quote, you have again sent out your last work and distributed it among the clergy of all sects in this city, not the Reformed only, but also the Papists. You have distributed it throughout other cities and universities of Holland. From that time, scarcely a month has now passed, and I do not hear of anyone murmuring. It seems, therefore, that you are seeking adversaries, but if I may be allowed to speak openly, I fear you will not find them. Ooh, seems like Kuno's trying to be a wet blanket there, but I don't think Swedenborg is really seeking adversaries or just trying to pick a fight, even though that's kind of the way it looks. I think his real why is revealed in this letter that he wrote to his good friend, Dr. Gabriel Beyer. Because see, in March 1769, Swedenborg writes to Beyer, and this is just after survey was published, and here's what he writes. Most Reverend Herr Doctor, I have had the pleasure of receiving the Herr Doctor's welcome letter of the 23rd of November, 1768. That I have not answered until now is because I wished to delay the answer until a little work had come out called, and here's the full Latin title, Sumaria Expositio Doctrinae Novae Ecclesiae Quae Per Novam Hierosolomam in Apocalypse Intelligator, wherein are fully exposed the errors of the hitherto accepted doctrines concerning justification by faith alone and concerning the imputation of the righteousness or merit of Christ. So did you catch that? It's right there. He says, wherein are fully exposed the errors. So why did he publish survey? To expose the errors of the accepted doctrines concerning justification by faith alone and concerning the imputation of the righteousness or merit of Christ. Survey is not a, quote, survey of teachings of the new church meant by the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. 
That's a good header for paragraph 16, maybe, but it doesn't describe the totality of the work. So what would be a truer title? Maybe a brief analysis of the errors of justification by faith alone and the imputation of Christ's merit. Shun evils before you do good? <laughs> yeah, maybe. My my subtle, sneaky way of telling you that you are all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I guess it would have been pretty in your face if he'd gone a little more on the nose with his title, so I could see why maybe he stuck with survey. But if if he's sticking with that, why does it, he feel this need to start this whole kerfuffle to begin with? Why does he feel like he has to expose the errors of the doctrines of justification by faith alone and the imputation of Christ's merit in the first place? Yeah, so the answer to that is also in this letter. After that opening, he tells Bayer where he's sending copies of the work, and and he also tells him that some have already read it, and that he plans to send Bayer copies that he can distribute in Sweden, hoping to spur a discussion around it there. And then he writes this in a new paragraph. Here they often ask me concerning the new church, when it will come. Whereupon I answer that it will come little by little, as the doctrine of justification and imputation is uprooted, which will likely be done by this treatise. (gasps) See? Ding, ding, ding! It's there! So that means this work was part of the prep for the new church. He had to start the uprooting to make way for true Christianity. So this is why heaven had that flower party. Because this treatise was doing this essential preparation work. It's very interesting. I wonder if it also relates to the purpleness of those striking flowers in the spiritual world. It suggests to me that there was a new union of goodness meant by the red and truth meant by the blue involved. So survey might just seem like an argument on the surface, but heaven got what was going on. This was the beginning, paving the way for something very new. Yes. So this sneaky little unassuming work actually was published to play this huge key role in igniting the process of uprooting the doctrine of justification by faith alone and the imputation of Christ's merit to make way for the new church. New church is cool. I'm all on board with that. I'm not trying to second guess Swedenborg's expenditure of resources, but did it really need, did we need to put this much force into uprooting that stuff? I mean, what's really so bad about those doctrines in the first place? I know. Well, that's, I mean, that's a huge conversation. And I have one little clue, and this is from Secrets of Heaven 4721. He writes, A church that acknowledges faith alone as its premise can never see what charity is, or the neighbor, or heaven. Such a church is inevitably puzzled to hear anyone ever say that a happy life after death and joy in heaven is the divine response to good wishes and good deeds toward others. The resulting happiness and bliss outstrips all perception and no one can possibly receive it who had not lived a life of faith 
or in other words, had not exercised neighborly kindness. All this is astounding to such a church. The Lord also openly teaches in Matthew 25, 31 to the end, and many other places, that a life of faith saves people. Yes, and I can see that that's something heaven would definitely have a party about, the possibility of people really understanding what the life of faith or the path that leads to heaven is really all about. Yeah, and so when you uproot something, this little by little, doing that uprooting, what is being planted in its place? We're going to find that out next time when we dig into what those points of discordance are really all about. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to never miss when a new episode comes out. In addition to our adventures into the past, we're bringing you the NCE Spotlight every other week. All of the translations used in this episode are from the ongoing work of the New Century Edition. The work survey will be coming out in 2022, as well as Volumes 3 and 4 of Secrets of Heaven. If you've benefited from the work of the Swedenborg Foundation through Off the Left Eye and the New Century Edition, consider supporting us with a donation. We're a nonprofit and depend on the support of our donors. To give, go to swedenborg.com donate. Give if you can, receive if you need. We're all in this together, and we're so glad you're here.